Why don't we stand and read uh, 1 Peter. We're going to read from chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Let's pray. Father, this book of 1 Peter that uh, was inspired by you and that Peter wrote, we are very thankful for. As we approach a new sermon series in our church beginning today, we ask for your guidance through your spirit to understand the truths contained here. And help me to relate to the church that the church in Peter's time that he was dealing with is virtually identical to some of the major issues that we're facing in our culture today. And although it was, they have a culture that's 2,000 years removed from us, and there was very much, in many ways, different social constructs with the Roman Empire being in power, and we don't have that, but there were still um, principles by which they had to endure and live by that we have to as well. Just help me through your spirit to relay those to the church today, and that we walk away encouraged and strengthened in our faith with uh, a goal of pleasing you by the way we speak and by the way we live. And we look forward to our time together in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> well, welcome everyone. We're a little bit uh, thinned out today, but maybe make up for faith in what we lack in numbers. <laughs> we are going to begin a new sermon series today in First Peter, as I mentioned in my prayer. And... This short little letter is actually quite special to me. Uh, it was because it was the very first book I did with Stuart and Laura when they became Christians. So when they became believers about, uh, I think it was seven years ago or so, um, we spent a summer together uh, going over this book as our first Bible study. And so for me, being part of their lives at that time, this was exciting for me to go through. And I, I know I enjoyed being part of their lives during that process, and I'm excited to see where they're at now in their faith. And it was very valuable to me as well in my own spiritual growth. But as you probably know, that this book, in comparison to other letters like 1 Corinthians, is relatively short. There's only 105 verses in the book of Peter. But even though it's a short book, don't let its length fool you in terms of its potential impact it will have in your own life. This book comes with a spiritual health warning. All right? You know those poison signs on the bottle? Well, this one's got a sign on the bottle. It's not for poison, but it's a, it's a saying, there's caution, spiritual health at risk here. All right? This is rich in, its, in this book in terms of its theological and doctrinal truths. And it's also rich in its ethical truths as well. It's very practical in how we're to live out our lives as Christians. And it will challenge us in many areas of our lives in which we are so ingrained yet need to be changed by Jesus Christ. So a lot of us have very, very strong thoughts on issues like such as marriage and government and, and what to do amongst in persecution and suffering and slander. We have these sort of thoughts about how we're to handle ourselves and Peter's going to address all these and challenges and all these things. But what I thought I would do today instead of diving into the first chapter and the first verse is give you an overview and introduction of the book so that you understand the context of what Peter was doing in his letter and give you an overview of the themes that are there. So we're going to do this in a form of questions. So who wrote it? Well, in the title of the letter, 
we get enough of a hint. Peter, right? The book tells you it was written by Peter. But other evidence within the letter is found in verse 1-1. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay? So when you look at through the names of the apostles, there was only one Peter. So right off the cuff, we know this is one of Jesus' disciples that he chose that day on the mountain when he came down after praying about who to pick. Now, such he's also describing chapter 5, verse 1, as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. So he calls himself this in 5.1, a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Such a claim fits well again with Peter because of his presence at Jesus' trial, in which he saw him beaten, spit upon, falsely accused, and eventually crucified. But there's other evidence that Peter was the author of this book besides within this letter. And that's found in 2 Peter 3, verse 1. He writes this, Beloved, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So it's interesting in 2 Peter that Peter refers to two letters he wrote. And what do we have in the New Testament? Two letters from Peter. So the evidence strongly supports Peter as the author. But there's an extra biblical source I'd like to show you that I find really fascinating. And those of you who've done church history and uh, will know this name well, but uh, there's, a, there's strong evidence outside the Bible that the Apostle Peter wrote this, found in a letter titled Epistle to the Philippians, written by a man named Polycarp. Now, Polycarp was an early church father. He was born in 69 AD and died in 155 AD. Now, to give you how close that is to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was supposedly crucified, depending on how you date him, but probably around 33 AD. So this guy was born only 40 years later after uh, Jesus, and these, some of these men chosen by Jesus, probably when they are like 20s and stuff when they were picked, or maybe even late teens, who knows. So some of these apostles would have even been alive when Polycarp was born. But I want to show you something in his letter that's very fascinating, because we have access to this letter, again, from 69 AD to 155 AD. We have a first century proof of what he wrote to the Philippians. Now look at the quotes that he has from, he quotes 1 Peter basically directly word for word. Look at these quotes. This is him in one, his version of the chapter and verse 1.3. He says, in whom, though you did not see him, you believe with inexpressible and glorious joy. What does Peter say in 1.8? And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Give you one more. In his book to the Philippians, he writes, not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult, or blow for blow, or curse for curse. And what does Peter say in 1 Peter 3.9? Not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Now, I have access to seven, I'm sure there's more, but I have actually seven direct quotes from Polycarp to the Philippians that mirror Peter. And I just gave you two by way of example. Now this is exciting for me, very, I mean, this kind of thing gives me uh, what I call uh, a greater commitment to Christianity and, and the trustworthiness of the scriptures. Here's why. What's the, one of the number one complaints and, and arguments against the Christian faith? You can't trust the Bible. It's so old. It's been translated so many times. It's been copied so many times. It's like that game of telephone. By the time it gets around the circle, how can you possibly trust the last answer from the first? We have a resource from the first century AD 
that basically word for word quotes 1 Peter 3.9 the way it's written in, in the NASB. So this is my translation of my Bible that I quoted you from 1 Peter. It's word for word basically the same as this. And there's no difference in application. So when people say you can't trust the Bible, it's been copied too many times, too many translations, I would just say, why don't you go read Polycarp and then come back to me and see what you think about that. That's a 2,000-year-old resource. So again, this excites me. I hope it excites you for why we can trust the Word of God in terms of its trustworthiness. This will be, help me in my evangelism now. I'll be able to use this as a tool in my discussions with people. So who was it written to? Well, the answer is given to us in 1-1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, so those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I thought I'd show you where these people live in relationship to the world today. Here's a modern day map of Turkey. So this, these, these are places that are in modern day Turkey, and these are the geographical locations they're divided up into. Now, if you look on the right hand side of your screen, You'll see Galatia, slap dab in the middle, and you'll see Bithynia northwest of it, straight north of it. You'll see, oh, I can't even read, it's so small here. Oh yeah, you'll see Bithynia to the left of it, and then you'll see Pontus and Cappadocia surrounding it. So you can see that these areas that he's written to are, are bordering Galatia, and we have the book of Galatians, of course, in our church, or in our Bible, I should say. So we know where they're from. We know they're from the modern-day Turkey. But who are these people? Well, they're described as being aliens who are scattered. Now, some of you might have the word exiles. Is that true? Do you have any of exiles instead of aliens? Nobody? Okay, we'll move on. <laughs> How about the word dispersed instead of uh, scattered? Okay, got a nod. Perfect. Okay, so aliens, exiled, scattered, dispersed. Who are these people based in this language? Well, many people think these actually are Jewish Christians because the, 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 the term alien and scattered or dispersion has to do with the Babylonian captivity. When Babylon came and took out Jerusalem and uh, they were captured, they were exiled into a different land and they were dispersed from their homeland. So this is very much Jewish language to describe the scattering of them from their homeland to Babylonia. So many people, uh, I think, will fight for the fact that these might be Jewish Christians. But actually, I would suggest that this is actually probably not what's going on here. And I'd say the majority of commentators don't believe it was an entirely a Jewish audience either. The majority actually believe these are probably Gentile Christians. And support for this would come from places like chapter 1, verses 2, or sorry, chapter 2, verses 10. Here he says, for you, were once, uh, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So for, for once you were not a people of God. And that's a reference to the Gentile inclusion. Because um, the Israelites knew that they were God's chosen people. And so the context here would be, you weren't my people, but now you have become one. And Paul quotes this in Romans 9. In verse 24, when he speaks of the Gentile inclusion as God's people. And that's a quote from Hosea 1. So there's the two options. Uh, uh, you know, Jewish Christians, which I don't think it is. And then Gentile Christians, what the text seems to support. But I would suggest that probably both aren't totally right. It's probably a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. And I'm going to deal with this specific issue next week in, in next week's sermon of why this would be. So there's probably a probably predominantly Gentile audience, but there have been some smattering of Jewish people within, within the congregation. So how did they get there? Who planted them? 
how the church arrived in Turkey. Well, no one knows for sure. Some believe Paul had something to do with it. And if you look at this map again, you can see why. If he's traveling through this area, uh, there's cities like uh, Presidia and Antioch and, uh, and uh, Troas, and these are located on the coast here. And what you find is, is that um, Paul made three out of four missionary journeys through this region. Now, he never made it to Cappadocia, per se, and, and Bithynia and Pontus, he, but he was in Galatia and the surrounding regions. And so perhaps through his influence there, the gospel spread to the other churches. But I would suggest a very strong possibility comes from another place in the scriptures from 30 years prior in Acts chapter 2. This is a really cool verse. Look at this. This is Acts 2, 5 to 9. The Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost and has fallen on all the people who have been visiting Jerusalem. And look what it says. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, this is the wind and the rushing of the Holy Spirit, uh, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. And this region is called Asia Minor in the uh, New Testament. So these men and women probably came down from Turkey during Pentecost, year, decades earlier, heard Peter teaching, because he was the one who led the church that day, Heard, teach, heard him teaching, had the Holy Spirit come upon, um, see the Holy Spirit fall upon the Jews and people speaking there, and then went back after Pentecost, back to their homeland and potentially planted churches. Now I can't say that's for sure, but that's a very good possibility based on who was there at Pentecost that day. So why was it written? Why was the book written? And this is really the meat of the sermon now. In chapter 5, verse 12, this is what it says. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying for this is the true grace of God. Now listen to this. Stand firm. Stand firm. The reason why Peter told this church to stand firm was this was a church that was suffering much hostility and persecution because of their connection to Jesus Christ. This was a suffering, persecuted church. And knowing from first-hand experience, <laughs> in terms of Peter, his first-hand experience already told him that one's faith could easily disintegrate in the midst of opposition and potential hostility. And so he wrote this letter, probably from knowing what happened to him, years earlier, he wrote this letter as a means of encouraging them in order that they would not lose hope and persevere in their commitments to Christ despite the hostility and opposition. And as one commentator put it, he wrote it to teach them how to live victoriously in the midst of ongoing hostility. How to live victoriously. Now this theme of suffering is pervasive throughout the book. So pervasive, we need to do this as a church. So turn with me as we go through this. In every single chapter of all the five chapters, suffering is a theme. So just go quickly through this with me. Look at one, chapter 1, verse 6. Now those of you who have iPhones, you're going to be frustrated with me because we're going to move quickly. <laughs> Hard to flip quickly through, uh, through this kind of message. But uh, 1, verse 6. 
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we, in this context, we have, um, we have these people distressed by various trials, and we're having their faith being tested like fire. Uh, look at 2.19. It says here, For this finds favor, for, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person, if a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Look at 3.13. Who is there to harm you if proves zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Look at 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. One more. Look at 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm on your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Clearly, this church was marked by suffering, hostility, and opposition. So what kind of persecution was it? Well, this may be a surprise to some of you, because it definitely was a surprise to me. I would have taught you wrong at first, if, if I, you know, from where I was at in my thinking on Monday to where I'm at now, I've changed my thoughts of what was going on in this culture and this church. But I originally thought, and maybe you do this, is probably physical persecution martyrdom, you know, like uh, lots of aggression in terms of like physical beatings and thrown in jail and so on and so forth. But I actually think the primary persecution these people were facing was actually social ostracism. Social ostracism. They were being rejected by the society around them for being Christians. Now, this came in a couple different forms. In chapter 2, verse 12, we see verbal abuse. Verbal abuse. It says there that they're being slandered because of their connection to Jesus Christ. So being slandered, their names were being gossiped about. They're having their names dragged through the mud because of who they were as Christians. And they weren't living the way the rest of the world around them was. And they weren't thinking like the rest of the world was around them. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says they're being reviled. Now the word reviled means to, mean, it means to be insulted or mistreated. Again, so they're being mistreated, insulted because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. So these are the kinds of verbal abuse that they're facing. But there's more. In chapter 3, 14, there's more than just verbal abuse. It says that they were being intimidated. So these people were being threatened and potentially bullied for who they were as Christians. So what's hard to know is how much of this intimidation though was physical persecution. How much of it was like physical aggression towards these believers. Now, one would think that would be a reality, considering the description of the suffering, or the suffering they were given in chapter 1, verse 7. Their faith was being tested by fire. And in 4.12, we read it was like a fiery ordeal for them. 
But even if there was some kind of physical aggression, it wasn't to the degree that the Romans empire historically had been known for. Substantiation for this is actually in chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, the government is painted in a more positive light than, say, what the Christians experienced under the reign of Nero. So Nero was, a, it was probably one of the most aggressive uh, emperors ever to live. He actually uh, would make torches out of humans for, to light up the sky at nighttime. So he'd take Christians, bind them to a stake, put like, you know, like wood and hay and stuff around them, and light them on fire as a way of lighting up the night sky. This is the kind of persecution that was going on in Rome uh, when Peter was still alive and so was Paul. In fact, many believe that um, Peter was martyred under the execution of Nero, and Paul was as well. So what we have here is this picture that we think this must be clearly going on in the church there. Well, Peter admonishes the, the, the church in chapter 2 to submit to the governing authorities. He's not likely ever going to do that if it was under a Nero-type reign. And so we have to think that it must be something different. However, to say that no physical harm was ever laid on these believers, I think, is to go maybe too far as well, because of what he says in 5.9. In 5.9 he says this, Resist the devil, firming your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So he's saying, listen, uh, guys, you're not alone. There's other churches throughout the nation, or throughout the world, in the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, that are suffering too. So let's look at one of these places, and we're going to learn something very interesting. 1 Thessalonians 2.14. This is Paul writing. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the, the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. So Paul, or Peter says in chapter 5, um, there's other, other churches in the world are enduring the same kind of hostility. And in Thessalonica, we see that they're enduring the same kind as they did in Judea. So we'll go back to what happened to Judea. The apostles were persecuted by the Sanhedrin physically, right? After they were proclaimed not to teach the name of Jesus, what happened? They were thrown in jail and beaten. Uh, Paul became a major persecutor of the church, even to the point of killing Stephen. And when he became a Christian and gave his life over to the Lord, Paul then was beaten basically <laughs> and physically mistreated everywhere he went for the rest of his life throughout the Roman Empire predominantly under the hands of his own Jewish people. Every time he entered a synagogue, he basically went sailing out the window he entered, that he came through. All right? So we see this, this, this contrast uh, and parallel like, through, the, through the New Testament here. So, so, so it's hard to say then how much of, a, how much of this uh, persecution was physical, if at all. But it's safe to say this, these Christians were definitely being discriminated against and harassed because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. They were social rejects in their culture. See why it's relevant for us today? If this was a church that was only being physically persecuted and martyred, what will we talk about for the next uh, two, three months? You'd be like, oh, that sucks for them, but I don't get that. And even though we know it could very well become a reality, but we don't have much to learn if that's the real case. But if they're being rejected because of their, their stance in culture, in terms of how to think, how to speak, and, how the, and the way to live, and they're being rejected because of the connection to Jesus in that way, there's a lot for us to learn from this book. And we know exactly what's happening in our culture with issues like that. Without getting into it now, but I think of those of you who are homeschooling. 
and what's the government doing and what's happening in the homeschooling area when it comes to what you can and can't do as a Christian parent. How about all the gender issues that are going through our culture? Uh, are you being widely accepted by your views on all that or are you facing potential social rejection and ostracism? And so you can see that as the issues get progressively worse in our culture, so does the social rejection by our culture as well. So with all this being said then, and the context established, if you were Peter, and I were Peter, how would you help a church through this situation? What would your counsel be to a church who's going through this? I don't know what you think your answer would be, but I can tell you what Peter did. He took a twofold approach to the church. The first thing he did was offer them reassurance by reaffirming their identity in Jesus Christ. He offered them reassurance by reaffirming their identity in Jesus Christ, specifically reminding them of the great salvation he had accomplished for them and the future promises he had in store for them as believers. Virtually the whole first chapter and the first half chapter of chapter 2 is dedicated to that. So chapter 1 is dedicated to this theme and the first half of chapter 2 is dedicated to this theme. Let me show you just a couple examples. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Here's what he's saying. I know who you are. I know what you're going through. I know you're suffering. But don't forget that you're God's chosen people. How about 1-3? Blessed be the Lord and God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to live in hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, Peter's saying this, God's not forgotten about you. I know you're suffering, but not only are you chosen people, you're protected by him. You're protected by him in that he's got a place reserved for you in heaven, and it's just there waiting for you. So not only are you not forgotten about, he's already prepared a home for you for the future. <clears throat> Give you just one more. Look in chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Again, I know you might feel abandoned and wondering where God is in all this, but Peter says this, he sees you as his own possession. You're his children, and he hasn't dismissed you at all. And I think this is important, church, because perhaps these people, when they became Christians, uh, believed in the promises that the people who had taught them the gospel had brought to them. They, 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 they believed all the promises about their future blessing and the blessings they were going to receive as Christians. And so now they're Christians, and life's not going well. <laughs> life's taken a, like a right-hand turn off of the blessed train. And it's going down the, this is a life of hard knocks. And so they're wondering, did we miss something? Why, why don't we know what's going on in terms of uh, life as a Christian now? 
And so Peter comes in and says, actually, God has not forsaken you. And he reassures them that they're perfectly in God's hands. And he knows everything that's going on. And they're right on track. And so he cements this, actually, gives them further reassurance for reminding them of who Jesus was to them. You see, Jesus lived a life of suffering. A Jesus, uh, a life marked with persecution. And if anyone was within God's will, if anyone was in God, within God's purposes, and if anyone was loved by the Father, it was his Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, what was his life marked with? Peace? Acceptance from the world around him? Of course not. It was marked with rejection, hostility, and opposition. And so Peter goes to great lengths to show that if their Lord and Savior suffered and was blessed for it and was within God's will for it, then they could also endure it and they were actually living a normal life as a believer. So something strange wasn't happening to him. This was actually normal. And it's a major, major theme within the letter that, we look, that Jesus is the model for how they're to live out their lives in the persecution and hostility they're facing. And I want to show you just a couple because it's so important uh, to us as a church. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit there is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer what is patiently and, and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he not, did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Look at 3.17. For, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Look at 4.1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. One more. 4.13. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled in the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests on you. So what Peter's saying is this. Church, the evidence of the trials in your life and the present realities of what's going on is not a sign that God's abandoned you. He's actually right there with you, and you're right in line with His Son. You're right in line with His Son, and you're okay in God's eyes. He still loves you. He's got a place in heaven for you, waiting for you to get home to. Trials are just a part and parcel of what it is to be a believer in a fallen and broken world. So Peter, as a wings of reassurance and reaffirming them, reassured them about who their identity was in Christ and what he'd done for them on the cross and what their future promises were. What else did he do? Well, he sought to repurpose them. He sought to repurpose them. So not only reassure, reassure them, but repurpose them. Well, how did he do this? Well, by focusing on their conduct and behavior. By focusing on their conduct and behavior. 
he reminded them that since they were God's chosen people, there was a given responsibility for how they were to live in the midst of a hostile world. As God's chosen people, there was a responsibility now for how they were to live in this world, both in terms of their speech and action as representatives of Christ. I'll give you a few examples from the text. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, You've been sprinkled, sorry, you've been sanctified by the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. In 1.14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. I look at uh, some place like 2.11. In 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And one more in chapter 3, verse 8. He says here, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So again, you see this overemphasis on this. And these are just a few of many examples in Peter. I've just cut it short for the sake of time. So you can see Peter's concern for their personal holiness and their obedience to him. But this was not only to be done in their public lives, but in their private lives as well in both public and private lives. And within the letter, he gives three examples. So look at chapter 2, verse 13 with me. The three examples are such. In 2.13, he reminds them about the Christian's responsibility in relationship to the secular government. There's a responsibility in which you view and live out your life and speak about the government and think about the government and the way you live in, as a Christian in the secular world. In 2.18, he cares about the Christian's attitude in the work environment, especially when you have a boss who's an outright jerk. Okay, so you're a Christian at work, and you've an outright, at work, and your boss is a complete jerk. Something which Stu and Callie experienced firsthand. <laughs> what do you do in that situation? In chapter three, verse one, the Christian wife's attitude and responsibility when married to a very difficult husband. This husband is described as being disobedient to the word of God. What's a Christian wife's attitude and responsibility to, towards a man that's virtually impossible to live with? When we get here in our sermon series, I'm sure we're going to have some interesting discussions in our dialogues about these topics. But notice that in the opening of each of these verses, he speaks about submission in these three areas. Look at 13, 2.13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Look at four, uh, 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. And look at 3.1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. So submission is the central theme of these. Now, why did Peter have to speak about these things? I suggest that Peter had to address this amongst the Christians in these churches because they'd adopted an attitude of something like this. And you might recognize this attitude in yourselves. <laughs> well, I'm a Christian now, so... All that really matters is that I'm saved, and who really cares what the world thinks, because it's a fallen and broken place, and like, it's just going to be eventually burned up and done away with. So as a Christian, I have freedoms and liberties to do whatever I want, think whatever I want, and so on and so forth. And if you guys are honest, some of you kind of have that little bit of attitude, especially when you think of the government, right? 
Notley, Trudeau, bunch of losers, hosers. Can't wait till the PC get back into power. Right? That kind of stuff. Ever guilty of any of that kind of thinking? Oh man, Eric and Matt, just stupid cops. Always out to get us and give us like ridiculous fines. Ever think about that when you get pulled over? Too bad they're not here today. I had that intentionally in there just to get them. Right? But Peter, what is Peter saying here? Uh, submit. Uh, submit. Yeah, but, but I have a really cantankerous husband and he's impossible to live with. You don't understand. He's doing this, he's doing this, he's doing this, he's doing this. And Peter says, yeah, I know. I get it. Submit. So again, these people have the attitude that it doesn't really matter what you think and do as a Christian because and how you speak about things because God doesn't really care because these people are clearly unredeemed and they're unbelievers so he doesn't really, he's not interested in them, he's interested in me and my spiritual walk. And Peter says, actually, God cares a lot more than you think. There's a reason and there's a purpose for the way you're to live in this world that God cares about. And what, what is that main purpose? Well, he basically says this through the theme of the letter. How you choose to respond to these situations could have an evangelistic effect in the world. The way you live, the way you speak, the way you conduct yourselves can have an evangelistic effect in the world. And God's all about saving souls, isn't he? It's all, that's, his, that's his main purpose. Well, saving so you can be in relationship with people. But he says this, I'm going to do it. I'll be the initiator of grace, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which we're going to do next week. I'm going, to, I'm going to start the process of salvation, but there's a role you play as a Christian in this world in bringing about that as well. I can use you as an instrument to save souls and to save people. Again, you see why Peter's so relevant for us today? What's your natural response when you're treated unjustly? I know some of you. I mean, you, you know me. You want, you want like hell, fire, and brimstone to fall on their heads. You want justice now and you want it badly. And if people treat you unfairly, you want, to, you want to get them. You want to make sure they get them. And if you don't get justice, you start to become unforgiving and hold on to bitterness. That's how I naturally operate. I'm sure you do the same. Right? We always want justice. We always want um, uh, mercy for us, but, but vengeance on others when we're mistreated. And Peter says, uh-uh, not so fast. There's a theme in this letter I want you to listen to. Did you forget what happened to Jesus? Did you forget? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, did not revile in return, while suffering, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, he who bore your sins on the cross? Again, very powerful letter for us. Jesus' ultimate goal through the Father's plan was the salvation of souls, and we have a role to play. I'll conclude with this, with this thought. Being a church that highly esteems the Scriptures and highly esteems uh, every word being of value and believes that every word has something to teach us and is there intentionally and we don't try to take things out of context and we address every subject the Bible has to offer. The Bible is, and the scriptures are front and center in our ministry. 
there's a really cool chapter and verse here that actually talks about the role of the Word of God in terms of bringing about this. How do you theologically change someone's mindset? How do you change behavior when things aren't going right? Peter tells you the Word of God is central. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. You know, moms, I know you don't like to hear this, but you put all this time and energy into getting the curtains nice in the baby room, getting the right pillows on the bed, making sure nothing's out of place. Their names are spelled in letters with stencils and wooden blocks. You have the right sound machine, the right lighting, all the right monitors, and the baby couldn't care less. All it wants is milk and changed. When it's hungry, it cries for milk. Couldn't care less about the lighting, the sound machine, the thing, it wants milk. And he's saying this to us, be a Christian like a little baby who longs for milk and just desperately desires the word of God in life. Because if you're going to have to face this culture and you're gonna stand up to persecution and hostility, especially with the issues we're gonna face, uh, both from the government, in our marriages, uh, from uh, our work situations, uh, being slandered on the street just in spiritual conversations. He says, you need to be trained by the Word of God. Romans 12.1 Present yourselves as living sacrifices. Do not be conformed to this world, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which only comes from truth. Because listen, you and I think truth starts within ourselves, naturally. We do. We always think we're right. But this is what Proverbs says. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it only leads to death. So you have this way of thinking about the world and how to handle situations that is naturally part of your flesh. He says, if you, keep, if you follow that through, it'll probably lead to bad, bad situations. Jeremiah, the heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? So people say, follow your heart. The Bible says, don't do that. That's exactly what we're doing, actually. And look at our culture around us. It's not good. 20th century, the bloodiest century, and all centuries put together in the first 19. We are following our heart, and that's why we barely can watch the news. Okay? So again, you want to grow in respect to salvation, you want to handle this culture, know the spiritual truths, the doctrinal truths we need to survive, and we need to learn how to live. The Word of God has to be longed for as a practice in our lives, like a little baby seeking for milk. I uh, have no lessons today. Normally, I, uh, of course, I put them up on the board at the end of the time, but I figured um, this is a, sort of like a self-explanatory letter, and I'm sure there's been enough said to provoke you to want to say something in dialogue, and we can go from there now. So I'll just conclude our time then, and uh, yeah, let's have some questions and comments if you like. <laughs>